0: Welcome to Next Normal, the podcast that is reimagining capitalism and exploring the ways that money can do so much more than just make more money. Here is your host, the co-founder of the Global Impact Investing Network, Amit Wuri.
1: Hello, it's great to have you with us for this episode of Next Normal. This new podcast aims to tackle an even bolder set of questions than I typically address in my day job leading the Global Impact Investing Network known as the djinn. We're digging deep into visions for the next normal in our global financial system. You've surely heard the calls for a reimagined capitalism that helps us tackle our biggest challenges while honoring the role of every stakeholder, from workers to the planet itself. Those demands are coming from tens of millions of regular people around the world, and even from some of the world's most prominent billionaires, and others enriched by the current system. But we need to get a lot smarter about how we actually get to that reimagined future. So, this podcast is committed to exploring the path toward our next normal with the freshest voices and the most respected thinkers on this topic. On this episode, I'm so happy to be joined by Rebecca Henderson. Rebecca is the John and Natty MacArthur University Professor at Harvard University and teaches the popular course there about reimagining capitalism. Before that, She spent more than two decades at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's a business management expert and a fellow of both the British Academy and of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She is also an author. Her new book is titled Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. You can see why she has an important perspective for this podcast. She calls this topic the world's most important conversation. Clearly, I think it's an important conversation as well. Welcome, Rebecca. Why do you think this is the world's most important conversation?
0: Because the world is on fire. We face enormous problems, not only unchecked climate change, but accelerating inequality and institutional breakdown. I think business is the most powerful institution on the planet. And that talking about how business might be able to make a difference against the problems we face is super important.
1: Well, I certainly couldn't agree more. Uh, and, and I think this is such a dynamic time in the world where this conversation about how do we shift the role of business, the role of investment, you know, the fundamentals of our financial system is absolutely critical. One of the things that I'd love to hear from your perspective, uh, given that you, you teach at a business school, um, obviously you are promoting business as an engine uh, of growth and progress, is what is the basic problem with capitalism today? <sighs>
0: You're starting with the small, easy questions. I love that, Amit.
1: That's right. Begin with the softball questions, and then we'll we'll build up from there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Capitalism today is out of balance. It is not working for the majority of the world's population, and it's destroying the planet. Let me be clear. I'm a huge fan of capitalism. I teach at the Harvard Business School. I think it is perhaps the greatest invention of the human race. You know, the use of competition and um, individual ownership of assets, which for me is the essence of capitalism, drives incredible innovation and productivity and change. I mean, just look at China. They took a billion people out of poverty when they embraced capitalism. So I'm a huge fan. But for capitalism to work well, it has to be genuinely free and fair capitalism. So... If I'm to get a bit technical, prices have to reflect the real dynamics of supply and demand. If you're in a situation where there's an input or an output that really isn't well priced, that's not real capitalism. Let me translate that into English. If you're burning fossil fuels and you are not compensating the society around you or future generations for the very significant damage you're causing, that, that's not the price system that we know and love that drives all the change in, in capitalism. Similarly, one of the reasons we love capitalism is it's all about freedom of opportunity, right? Instead of you only get a job if you know the man who runs the place or you're the son-in-law of the prime minister, capitalism says anyone can play. And one of the problems we have right now is increasingly people believe that the system is rigged in favor of the rich, that they don't have the education or the healthcare or the connections or the access that's required to really compete. And there's an uncomfortably large amount of evidence suggesting that they're right. So we're leaving people behind. We're running through our natural capital, the oceans, the topsoil, the atmosphere, as if it wasn't worth anything and we're treating people as if they were things and not giving them the resources they need to compete. So at the moment, capitalism is not delivering as it should.
1: Well, and I think one of the things that's so interesting about this moment is that we are hearing calls for change from so many different audiences. Uh, you know, from climate activists, you know, currently from, you know, uh, activists focused on on racial injustice, like the Black Lives Matter movement and and all the way up through the World Economic Forum and titans of industry are saying that, you know, capitalism as we know it um, is no longer working. Given that it seems like there are so many powerful voices from the grass tops to the grassroots talking about the need for change. What do you think is holding these problems in place?
0: Where do I start? I spent the first 20 years of my life as the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management at MIT. I studied firms like Kodak that could see the future was going to be different than the current day, that knew they needed to change and yet could not. I spent a year with Nokia trying to persuade them to react to Apple entirely without success. It is super hard to change. Why? It's hard because our first impulse is to say, it's not really as bad as people say. It's not really that serious. You know, climate change, maybe it's real. Black Lives Matter, yeah, there's some issues, but but not with me. I'm fine. Because it's so comfortable to be just doing the established thing. So we deny what's happening. The second step is we say, well, okay, okay, it's happening. But, you know, um, there's no business case. I, you know, I'm a business person and and let's be clear. I have 25 years uh, combined experience on major public boards. I understand that it's important to make money and to give a decent return to investors. And I know how tough that is. So if you're trying to make payroll, you're responding to your customers now, excuse me, we have a pandemic to deal with as well. There's not seemingly not much room you don't, you think, well, yeah, I need to change, but who's going to pay for that? And I need to make my short term numbers, and that's a huge barrier. And last but not least is the fact that, you know, it's hard to do new things. Even when we know we need to change and we know there's a strong business case for changing, it's hard. So let me ask you the tough question I always ask, you don't have to answer. Do you work out every day? Right? We all know that we absolutely should work out every day. The evidence is overwhelming. It's going to make a real difference to us. Do we do it? It's tough, right? You need to make time in your day. You need to change your habits. You need to get through a lot of stuff. Or in the words of a taxi driver to whom I described my PhD thesis, you're telling me that you spent three years And a huge amount of money, and got a Harvard PhD thesis for finding out that large firms get fat and lazy and have trouble changing. You know, that's, it's hard. Change is hard. Social change is even harder. Because to really deal with the problems that we're facing, we need to not only change business, but I think to change our social consensus as to what we need to be focused on. And I think we need to rebuild and reinvigorate our democracy. And that's quite a to do list. Uh, So I'm not surprised that this is tough. That surprisingly makes me hopeful. I think a lot of people say to me, well, like nothing is happening. And I'm like, change is hard. A lot is happening. And I think that is absolutely the case. I think we're beginning to see real change, but it's bumpy and slow as change always is.
1: Well, and, and I really um, appreciate kind of the you know, the spectrum of you know change that's required, and what you highlight. You know, everything from personal responsibility, uh, whether it's my workout regimen, um, or you know just how individuals we you know we, how we save, how we spend, how we invest our money, um, and and how we earn it as well is part of what shapes the system. Um, but also all the way up to big structures. You know, the structure of how our government works, the relationship between business, society, and the government. Um, And I think given the dramatic levels that we need, one of the things that I I hope often motivates change is that vision of what it could be on the other side um, and that vision of its potential. And so can you paint a picture of what you see as capitalism's potential? Like, what could it look like in its idealized form?
0: We could build a truly sustainable and equitable society where everyone has enough to eat, physical security, and a good job. We have the technology to do that. We have the wealth and the resources to do that. This is what's so exciting about the current moment. The human race is incredibly rich and incredibly smart. Partly, this is my spending 20 years at MIT, but I really think we can solve our technological problems. All we need to do is get the politics and the business right. You know, there's a wonderful quote by E.O. Wilson who says, the problem with the human race is we have space-age technology, medieval institutions, and Stone Age emotions. If we can mobilize ourselves, we could build a society which is classically capitalist. Everyone has a chance to compete. We see a stream of new products and solutions that address our environmental problems. We create millions of good jobs. We have all kinds of needs that need to be met so we can create all those new jobs, and we can do that with equity. To me, the ideal society doesn't look that different from the society we began to build here in the US in the 50s and 60s, only without the misogyny and the racism. A society in which business felt they had civic responsibility, that they needed to contribute, and we saw unparalleled growth. In, uh, in the U.S. and in Europe at roughly the same time. So I think we need to get back on that trajectory, and we can do so.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how we get from where we are today uh, to where we want to be? Um, I know in your book you lay out a path towards this vision, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about the specific steps we can take to realize that vision.
0: In the book, I suggest that there are five critical steps and the first two are really one. That The first step is to understand that businesses right now can address some of the problems we face, some of the social problems and environmental problems, and make money while doing so. That the key to doing this is recognizing that the world is changing, that the enormous problems we face are throwing up all kinds of opportunities, You see this most obviously in climate change, where we're seeing billion-dollar businesses being built in renewables and in things like electric vehicles. You can see it in um, waste handling, where the movement from just throwing our garbage in holes in the ground to building entirely uh, circular economies is beginning to take off. You can see it in the fact that the most successful IPO of the last 20 years was a soybean burger company. So there are all kinds of opportunities to meet the new needs that our current moment is throwing up. Added to that, there's lots of evidence to suggest that if a business can move in this direction, can understand that, yes, making money is important, but the goal of a firm is not to make money. It never was. The goal of a firm is to build a prosperous, thriving society. Asking the question, what is the purpose of this business? So many firms were originally founded on purpose. I get into trouble for saying this, but Walmart, one of the most successful firms of the 20th century, was a purpose-driven business. Sam Walton's original vision was to bring real choice to consumers in rural Arkansas. And he built a business devoted to that vision. And in doing so, remade logistics and global supply chains and built, you know, the largest company in the world. So often, successful businesses start by focusing on an unmet need, a goal that they have. And that purpose gives people a shared vision, uh, gives people an intrinsic motivation, a sense that they're working for more than just a paycheck and a sense of trust and commitment to the entire organization, that is dynamite when it comes to doing new things. And when you put these things together, new opportunities plus purpose, you get a group of firms that are beginning to catalyze change on a global level. So that's the first step. The second step is the recognition that, whoa, well, I made a big difference, but it wasn't enough. Let's say, take the case of Mark Bertolini, who was CEO of Aetna a few years ago. And he discovered by accident that um, several of his employees, roughly 12% of his employees, were on minimum wage and that they were having a serious time making ends meet. A lot of them were on Medicaid. They were using food stamps. They were working two jobs. They were highly stressed. And these were the people who were answering his phone. So Aetna is a health insurance company, and the people who answer the phone are the people who deal with the patients on a day-to-day basis. And these these were people who were not making a living wage and were incredibly stressed. He went back to the organization and said, look, let's raise their wage. And they said, well, what do you mean? We don't have to. It's the prevailing wage. He said, did you not hear me? Let's raise their wages so it cost about 20 million dollars he bought that group of employees up to um, a living wage increased cash compensation in many cases by 30 to 40 percent really improved productivity really improved commitment to the organization made the money back fantastic story but not enough as he thought about the problem of inequality and many people not making a living wage, he realized that that in the end could only be addressed by changes in things like the educational system and in healthcare, care, and more fundamentally, if all his competitors would pay the same wages. You see this really at Walmart, where, again, the CEO has been very much trying to raise the wages of, of people who work at Walmart, but it's a very difficult business with thin margins, And he can only really do that if his competitors do the same thing. You see this, lots of firms, as they start to move in this direction, realize that to build a better society, business needs to work together. The technical way of thinking about it is it makes something pre-competitive. So what we're seeing is firms banding together to address these issues, deciding together to use sustainable palm oil. Together to work with the local educational system to improve funding for schooling and saying, you know, raise our taxes, raise taxes on everyone so that we can do a better job. And so collective action is the next important step. Now, that's had some incredible successes, but it, it has serious problems. Um, as you might guess, People say, well, I love this in theory, and I know I promised to buy sustainable palm oil, and I promised to pay people more, but I have, I'm have, i having kind of a bad quarter. I don't think I'll do it. And so the question on the table then is, who can act as the enforcer, if you like? Who can say, no, you know, everyone is going to move in this direction, and if we all move, no one's at a competitive disadvantage? And there are really two places to look for that. And I'll mention them, Amit, and you can decide how much depth we need to go into. But the first place to look is to investors. Investors can play an incredibly important role in building a more sustainable and uh, just society. In the first place, they can ensure that the firms that are leading the charge have the long-term, patient, engaged money that those firms often need to be able to make these kinds of transitions. And in the second place, investors themselves can group together and say, you know, climate change is an existential risk to the value of our entire portfolio. We can't diversify it away. Social breakdown, political degradation is an existential risk. All investors need to insist that firms start to do the right thing, and together we can we can make a real difference.
1: One of the things that I've been very interested in is this. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of work that's being done to promote kind of the the best actors. You know, the, whether it's at corporate leaders or um, or investors who are really. Um, focused on um, kind of creating a new path, kind of this collective action model, if you will. So you may have a great vanguard of investors or of company leaders who are really um, embodying great practices, uh, but the bulk of industries may be stuck in kind of the status quo. And I'd love to get your take on this balance between like collective action and leadership um, versus government action um, that just sets the rules of the game for everyone.
0: There's still a lot of pressure in the system to focus on the short-term and the status quo. When uh, Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, announced he was significantly raising wages for his least paid workers, the stock dropped by, I think, approximately 25%. I mean, it was an enormous drop. Some people think that if one of the Waltons hadn't been the chair of Doug's board and had a significant share in the company, Doug might have lost his job. Um, Certainly a risk. Humans are naturally wired to be short-term oriented. You know, left to ourselves, we focus on me and now. Um, as a parent, I know because I spent many years trying to persuade our, our son that no, 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 it was about us and later. And indeed, I think one way to think about human civilization is as a kind of collective attempt to persuade humans that thinking about the longer term and the good of the community is in fact better for everyone. I mean, I mean no disrespect, but you can sort of take all the great faith traditions and say that's what they say. Just thinking about yourself and just thinking about now is a mistake. And that's what government at its best does, is it represents or stands up for the collective well-being and a focus on the long term. So in some ways... Asking investors to address these larger problems is, is tough. It's, it's difficult. And yes, there are leading firms moving forward, but firms behind them go, you know, I'm busy and it's not happening and I can't get this done, so don't bother me. I think the way things will happen is that our problems will get worse There will be more pressure from employees and customers and people in the streets, from people exercising their constitutional right to protest and people voting. There will be increasing pressure on firms to address these kinds of issues. And as that pressure builds, the fact that there are firms out in front will be incredibly important. As we begin to develop better measures of how firms are behaving, that will be incredibly important. You know, I say in my book that I used to think accountants were boring, but now I understand that they're the backbone of modern civilization. And we can only make progress when we can measure what we need. So one way to think about ESG is as the next great evolution in accounting, that it took a 100 years to put financial accounting in place. Uh, P&G used to issue an annual report that said, you know, our sales were $50 million, our profits were 500000 any stockholder wanting additional detail can apply to the firm in Cincinnati in person. I mean, that used to be what financial accounting was like. ESG is about measuring material, non-financial quantities that have a real effect on firm performance. And I think as we see better measures, investors will be able to have conversations with firms along the following line. I see you're raising wages. Firm, yes, because it will increase commitment and engagement and productivity. Investor, okay, Let's see how that goes. Show me what you expect to happen in terms of productivity and engagement and turnover. Um, And once we can talk about the returns to these investments, I think investors will feel much more comfortable making them. After all, we know that when the story is concrete, when investors understand they will tolerate long-term losses on a large scale. Think about the history of Amazon. Uh, Think about the major pharmaceutical companies where investors let the big companies invest billions of dollars in projects that won't pay off for 10 years. So it's not that it can't be done. It's that we're in the midst of supporting investors and firms in learning about new business models, in talking about new business models and demonstrating that they make money. The other big issue here is the one that you pointed me towards, which is in the end, we're only going to really focus on us and the long term if government steps up, that Yes, we can try and persuade firms there's a better way to act. There are new business models, but there'll always be laggards. And many of the investments we need to make, like in education and healthcare, can only be made at scale by the government. And so for me, one of the important uh, roles that investors and business can play is beginning to talk about government in a new way not just as something that gets in the way and imposes costs. I mean, and I understand that. I'm not a fan of paying my taxes. I I think it's the right thing to do, but it's not my best day. And, uh, you know, regulation can seem burdensome and and difficult, but a a good government is necessary. And I think we've lost sight of that over the last uh, 20 years. It's become easy for business people to say, you know, that's not my job. Yes, there's polarization. Yes, the democracy doesn't seem to be working very well, but it's not really to do with me. I think a really important part of the puzzle here is persuading our business to step up and say, no, no, we need a strong government. We need to renew our democracy. And uh, you know that old saying, who, he who has the gold makes the rules. That's the golden rule. Investors have a huge voice in this conversation. To see someone like Larry Fink saying business should, uh, has responsibility to a greater purpose, I think is clearly just a first step, but potentially an incredibly important step.
1: And I think there's so much to unpack there, and I'll just dive in on a couple of things. I think one thing I'd, I'd love to hear you um, talk a little bit more about is just the, you know, the impact you expect of the coronavirus pandemic um, on this path of systemic change. You know, on the one hand, uh, I see um, you know, the, the beginnings of what I believe will be you know, in national level or even global conversations about the relationship between business and society. You know the questions about how workers are treated, um, who's essential, and how do we value them? Um, whether they're in the healthcare system or in the food supply chain, um, you can see this playing out on the front pages of major newspapers all around the world. Um, on the other hand, I also see that there is, uh, you know, in these types of dislocations, that we are seeing a lot of you know smaller companies, innovative companies that are being um, really strangled in terms of capital and access to customers and revenue. Um, which which could really actually lead towards a greater concentration of power and markets and influence amongst a smaller set of, um, of companies.
0: It could go either way. As you laid out, uh, COVID is arguably driving greater concentration of economic power. It's really good to be a big firm right now and tough to be small. It's making our societies poorer, throwing millions of people out of work, and it's adding a lot of uh, government debt. So from one perspective, it's not a great moment to be really rethinking our social and economic um, arrangements. But on the other hand, I, I think there really might be a silver lining. As you said, the pandemic has made inequality a real thing instead of just a name in the newspaper it's essential workers not having sick pay or sufficient savings that they can stay home if they get ill. The idea that I'm not healthy if you're not healthy is I think really front center now and when you couple that with the uh, events around George Floyd's death and the focus on Black Lives Matter And on the importance of making sure that the economy works for everyone, I think you'll build what we see building is an appetite for change, a sense that we're really on the wrong path and that we need to change. And then let's add to that the fact that the pandemic shows us that we can change. Lots of people have said this, but really moving 25% of the workforce to being working from home is huge. Uh, Firms are discovering they can do things they never believed, uh, never believed possible. And let's add to that the realization that when we lose our community, when we lose our ability to work together, that we've lost something really important. And here, I don't want to seem naive I don't know about you. I I want to have dinner with friends and sit in a crowded restaurant and go to a rock concert and scream my heart out. I want to be part of the larger community. And one of my hopes is that the pandemic might remind us that the health of the larger community is fundamental to our own health. Last but not least, I think it's persuaded many business people that it is worth planning for risk that simply maximizing short-term returns by cutting every cost, by being as efficient as possible, may not be the right thing to do. I've lost track of the number of business people who said to me, I designed my supply chain for low cost and efficiency. I need to design it for risk. That's a real shift and I think will particularly help us address some of the environmental problems we face.
1: No, I really appreciate those points about kind of the shift in thinking that may come from business leaders and individuals alike and, and the real sense of interconnectedness uh, that is coming through in this pandemic. Um, I, I did want to pick up on this point you raised, um, which is obviously an incredibly viscerally powerful uh, moment that we're in around the issues of racial injustice. Uh, And, you know, the the widespread protests and activism that have, you know, know, certainly spread across um, urban and rural America and have gone internationally and I think are having not just conversations about, you know, the the treatment of black people in America, but also in other countries, the history of colonialism and the relationship with indigenous communities, in addition to other ethnic minorities, Uh, it's incredibly powerful. Um, one of the things that I have you know, experienced over the years and into business leaders and investors um, about things like um, you can, uh, inequities, uh, you know, when you talk socioeconomic, I think there's often a lot of engagement. You can talk about climate change, and I think there's a lot of uh, recognition that's grown with time. But I get a, you know, a very uh, different types of answers based on um, you know, talking about racial disparities and how those disparities intersect with business models and the economic system, uh, some people I think absolutely get it. Uh, unfortunately, it's a small subset, and, and I think the others have a hard time seeing or even talking about it. You get to talk to a wide variety of business leaders, and you get to train future business leaders as a uh, as a professor. Can you talk about how race um, has come up in these discussions about you know the future of capitalism and? Uh, and how you expect those conversations will change as a result of these you know, massive protests and, and discussions that they're causing?
0: This uh, last semester, we explored issues of systemic racism in the required first-year course I have the honor to lead at uh, at HBS. We focused particularly on the role of slavery in sustaining early capitalism and then on the continued history of discrimination and exclusion that uh, black Americans have experienced since that time, uh, culminating in a note on inequality and and really laying out the statistics of the difference in incarceration rates and pay levels and wealth levels between whites and people of color in America. And then we did a case on Detroit where so many black Americans lack easy access to public transport and are at a significant disadvantage when it comes to access to jobs. And we asked, what is the role of business in the face of these kinds of inequities? And I agree with you, Ahmed, up until about... (laughs) really, up until the current uh, pandemic, it's been hard to talk about inequality and even harder to talk about structural racism. But I think in many ways, that's the result of lazy thinking. I mean, the kinds of, of questions we talk about in class, and I, I talk about to business people now, are the, the need to let go of power and privilege not only because it's the right thing to do but because in the end you too will be better off if you do it i think of the great european kings in uh, in the 18th century they they were all about me right letta c'est moi i am the king i am the state and it it was it took a revolution to persuade those kings to let go and give power to the middle class and to really let capitalism fly and the more people we brought into capitalism the richer we became i mean the estimates of the benefit of treating women as human beings who could take any job are enormous i mean lots of economic research to suggest that a very significant fraction of the growth we've seen over the last 30 years is because women came into the to the workforce well now we're seeing similar studies around really including uh, black americans and latinx americans in our workforce i mean what kind of waste of resource is it to take Amazing human beings and give them health care and education that is radically substandard. We have zip codes where health expectancy is lower than Botswana. We have kids um, growing up without adequate nutrition to give them strong brains. I mean, this does not make any sense. So inclusion is absolutely the right and the moral thing to do. We have to address right across the world, as you say, this is a global issue, the exclusion of people who don't look like us from the economic mainstream and the political mainstream. But the benefits of doing that are very real. I mean... I don't know about you, but I'd rather live in a society where everyone felt valued and included. I don't want to live in a society where I have to have a guard on the gate with a machine gun. And I am not talking with hyperbole. I've been to Rio de Janeiro. I know what that looks like. Um, I don't want to live in that kind of society. But I also think we would all make more money and be better off if we included this incredible fraction of society. I mean, by 2030... Half of the labor force is going to be black or Latinx or non-white. We have to find a way to include them, half at full power, as you know, so that they're absolutely equal contributors. Half of consumers are going to be black or Latinx or otherwise non-white. We have to include them if we're going to be able to have people to sell things to. So, um, as as I teach and as I talk to managers, I try and hold this tension. Between the moral case, which, you know, if you really pushed me, I think I think we should do this for moral reasons, even if there wasn't an economic case. I think it's outrageous what um, is happening to black Americans today and uh, to, to black and brown and other excluded minorities in many societies. It must be fixed for our health as a society uh, just because it's the right thing to do. But I also think it's economically the right thing to do.
1: Well, that has me spinning on so many things I'd love to ask, but I know we're at um, a time where I have to transition to our lightning round. But if there's one way I could kind of sum up um, the many, many great ideas that I'm hearing, it's this transition from a world on fire to a world in balance. Um, and, And I love kind of the different perspectives you've brought to this. Um, you know, I, I may be able to predict some of your responses on this, but I, but I hope not. Um, I, I wanna ask you a few questions from a lightning round. Uh, they're, they're short and sweet, um, uh, but one question uh, to kick off is, when you think about the future of capitalism, uh, which country do you have your eye on?
0: <laughs> Denmark.
1: <laughs> I figured.
0: <laughs> it's an amazing place. And of course, it's not that we should all be Danish, we will all do it differently, but the underlying ideas Strong safety net. Everyone has education, healthcare, childcare. Strong capitalism. Um, very high rates of new firm formation. Strong innovation, um, and strong government. Um, people who work in McDonald's in, uh, in in Denmark make more than twenty dollars an hour, and it's an incredibly successful society. I, I think we could do that. I think we could do it everywhere.
1: No, that's great. And and one thing I'd add to that list is also great impact investors in in Denmark. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
1: When you think about the future of capitalism, which world leaders are you watching?
0: I'm a fan of Angela Merkel. I think Trudeau in Canada. I think what Australia and New Zealand are trying to do is super interesting. So how could I not be a fan of the Prime Minister of New Zealand? I think she's amazing. But I don't think heroes are going to save us. I think all of us need to find a way forward. It's not a matter of waiting for the right politician. It's a matter of of moving forward together. Um, And uh, I I think there are lots of people to look at once you start thinking about it that way.
1: That certainly resonates with me. And, you know, and, and I think there can be very enlightened leadership, um, but oftentimes, you know, leaders are responding to the will of the people. Um, and so I think it is about creating that broader social mandate. Um, next question. Um, in addition to your book, uh, what is the single best book you can recommend on this topic?
0: Yeah. A book called The Entrepreneurial State by Mariana Matsukato. I love that book. So many business people have talked themselves into believing that government is always lazy and bureaucratic and can never get anything done. And The Entrepreneurial State takes us through the history of the last hundred years and shows us with tons of fantastic examples how important a role the government has played in supporting modern capitalism and uh, and really laying to rest the idea that you could do free markets without a free government
1: no that's great and um, you and know, one of the things that I appreciate about this interview is the the picture you painted of, about what capitalism could look like. Uh, And of course, I'm impatient. Um, So I'd love to know in your view, what is the earliest that your reimagined vision of capitalism might take hold?
0: Oh, oh. (laughs) you're not going to like my answer. It depends how quickly things get really bad. It will happen faster if climate change accelerates. It will happen faster if we cannot solve or seriously address our racial problems. Um, but these things are not easy. So, uh, so I hope that 10 years from now, you and I will be sitting down with a glass of wine saying, you know, I didn't think it could happen, but it came together and look at what we have built. I think that's possible. It's not like I'm saying, oh yeah, for sure. That's definitely going to happen. But I think it is possible we could really be moving in a much better direction within 10 years.
1: I certainly hope so. My final question, um, if you could recommend that we interview only one more person on this topic, uh, who would it be?
0: (laughs) I'm not sure you'll want to do this, but I would recommend you talk to Jacob Hacker, who is a professor of political science at Yale. He is really, I mean, he's super smart, he's very funny, and he is one of the world's experts on just how out of balance our society has become. I think you might find a conversation with him really interesting.
1: Well, this has been great and and I think incredibly uh, stimulating and I think thought-provoking. Rebecca, we really appreciate your time with us today, and I'm just so struck by kind of the expansiveness of this vision, I think a real integration of thinking about the role of um, civil society, um, business and investment, and also the government. um, And of course, you know, this path about how we go from a world on fire to a world in balance. Uh, So thank you so much for sharing your time and your
0: perspective. Amit, thank you very much for the invitation. It's an honor and a pleasure to have uh, joined you for the conversation.
1: To our listeners, thank you please share this podcast and your thoughts about Rebecca's vision for capitalism on all your personal social media platforms. Help us build this movement by telling your friends and colleagues. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Amit K. Bore and on LinkedIn. That's where this conversation can continue. We're aiming to make this podcast a must-listen resource by connecting you to the freshest voices and the most respected thinkers on this topic. And we'll also bring you interviews with people who challenge our thinking. We know that money can do so much more than just make more money. And we're eager to help show the world how. Until next time, this has been the Next Normal Podcast. Take care and stay safe.